Led Zeppelin had quite an eventful first two years of existence as a band. From their formation in August 1968 through the end of 1969, Zeppelin released two albums, toured Europe four times, and the United States three times, with great success. By the beginning of 1970, the band was looking for some quiet time in the country to record their third release. The result was the experimental and acoustic-leaning Led Zeppelin III. Possibly the most divisive record in their catalog, Three is often referred to as Led Zeppelin's Time Out album. An earthy pause before the band climbs aboard the mothership and becomes the biggest band in the world. I'm Brennan. Welcome to Boogie Chits. Led Zeppelin starts with Jimmy Page, born in the suburbs of London in 1944. He starts playing guitar around 12 years old. Jimmy had found an old Spanish-style guitar in a house that he and his family had moved into. He understood the instrument almost immediately. In 1957, at 13, Jimmy played on BBC television as part of a skiffle group. Skiffle music was an English take on American folk music that was all the rage in England during that time. Lonnie Donegan is a skiffle artist worth checking out. Ham and eggs, pork and beans. It's pretty, it's uh, upbeat, catchy shit. Young Jimmy quickly worked his way into a lucrative session musician role by the early 1960s. Jimmy Page is all over popular British songs from the first half of the 60s. He was a, a favorite guitarist of producer Shel Tamney and can be heard on a bunch of singles by The Who and The Kinks. He also plays guitar on that boozebag Marianne Faith, Faithful's uh, As Tears Go By and Petula Clark's Downtown. That's the song from Girl Interrupted. That's Susanna, Susanna K.S. Han. In uh, 1966, Jimmy accepts an offer to join established English buzz, buzz band The Yardbirds after their lead guitarist Eric Clapton quits. The Yardbirds would very briefly have Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page on guitar before Beck exits to do his own thing like Clapton before him. By 1968, the remaining members of the Yardbirds have all quit the band except for Jimmy Page and bassist Chris Drea. The lead singer, Keith Relph, he was uh, kind of a head case. He used to get loaded like at shows and then fart into the mic with that flat, pale British ass. It's gross. He and the drummer... They, they left it because they wanted to do like a folk thing. Uh, the Yardbirds are also completely burnt out after a grueling U.S. tour and, you know, years of road grind. Jimmy Page, on the other hand, he's ready to go and has already infused his crunchy blues uh, sound into the Yardbirds. Prince William probably has a, a pretty flat British ass. He's already got that billless pelican head. I don't know, that Middleton's kind of a unit. It seems like he would need hip. Uh, the Yardbirds suck ass until Jimmy Page joins them. That's personal opinion. He adds like a psychedelic finale to that band before they eventually eat it. The Yardbirds are like, they're like Austin Powers music to me. Remember when uh, Kanye West said on live television that GWB didn't care about black people during that Katrina benefit? Mike Myers was next to him, and it would have been funny if he, if he was in that Austin Powers costume, did like the Austin Powers reaction to it. The, the uh, Yardbirds, they released one album with Jimmy Page on guitar. It's called Little Games from 1967. It's okay. So the Yardbirds have 
already committed to a tour of Scandinavia booked by their new manager, Peter Grant, who is with Paige on the idea of keeping the band going just with new members. So Paige and Drea start looking for a singer and drummer to fill out the new Yardbirds lineup. The original members would allow the Yardbird name to be used for Scandinavia, and then it's done after that. Paige's choice for lead singer of the new Yardbirds is singer and guitarist Terry Reed, but he has commitments. He's already has tours booked opening for the Rolling Stones and then Cream, which is where uh, Eric Clapton went after leaving the Yardbirds. Terry Reed would go on to open for the Rolling Stones like 1969 tour of the U.S., but he was not at the infamous Altamont gig in December. He also played uh, Mick and Bianca Jagger's wedding. So Terry Reed, he has to pass on the offer, but being the true English gentleman that he is, he provides Jimmy with a recommendation. Check out the young cauliflower-haired screaming lunatic lead singer from the Band of Joy. His name is Robert Plant. The Band of Joy had opened up for Terry Reed in England, and that's how he knew Plant. Robert Plant was born in 1948, raised in the West Midlands of England. He discovered and fell in love with all the black American blues singers that his contemporaries loved. Willie Dixon, Robert Johnson, Buka White, and he was uh, fascinated with Elvis Presley. He uh, parades around the house mimicking the king when he's 10 years old. Uh, once he graduates the Engli- what is the English equivalent of high school, he, he gets his levels, I think that's what they call it. He starts working various day jobs and sings in a slew of bands. He sparks up a friendship with the drummer of a promising band called The Band of Joy. The drummer's name is John Bonham. Robert and John are the same age, 19 going on 20. Jimmy Page and manager Peter Grant, they go to see Robert perform in a band called Hobbs Tweedle at a Birmingham college in 1968. After the gig, Page and Grant approach the future king of open-chested blouses and offer him the chance to sing for the new Yardbirds. Robert says yes. Jimmy uh, Page, he knew Robert Plant was the one immediately. He thought there was something wrong with him personality-wise because how is this guy only playing in, like, singing in a college cafeteria? Jimmy was blown away by Robert's uh, psychedelic uh, blues vocal range. Robert knew that the Yardbirds had played in America, so he figured he would get more exposure by getting, you know, some of that Yardbirds rub. Plants are singing for the uh, the new YBs is basically a career stepping stone. Jimmy's new outfit still needs a drummer, and Robert pays it forward and gives a recommendation. He goes, check out John Bonham. Jimmy Page and Peter manager Peter Grant make a trek out of London to go see Robert's uh, drummer friend, who is now making bank as the touring drummer for English folk singer Tim Rose. Two things to note about Tim Rose. Jimi Hendrix saw Tim Rose perform the song Hey Joe at the Cafe Wa in New York City and ended up recording his own version of the song, which everyone in the world now knows. Also, in 1967, Tim Rose opened shows for the Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead at the Fillmore West in San Francisco. Jerry Garcia would turn Tim's song Morning Dew into one of the ultimate calmers of LSD jitters in the Grateful Dead catalog. There's also a version of Morning Dew on the Jeff Beck Group uh, Truth album from 1968. Rod 
Stewart does the vocals on that one. Rod Stewart's awesome on that album. That that first Jeff Beck uh, studio studio release, it's fantastic. It should be noted that Tim Rose did not write either one of those songs. He just performed them. He like covered them. So these guys grabbed the cover of a cover. Anyway, Bonham is now Tim Rose's drummer and had also recently gotten offered to drum for Joe Cocker. Like the reaction with Robert Plant's voice, Jimmy and Peter instantly know Bonham is the one as soon as he starts pounding the kit. They make the offer, but John says he will have to mull it over because of the great money he's making now. He's only 20 and living the life while like the kids he went to school with are cleaning chimneys or, or whatever. John Bonham was born in 1948 in Worcestershire, same as the sauce, and started playing drums at age five. He, would fa- he fashioned like a kit out of stuff just laying around the house. He was mostly self-taught and started playing in bands as a teenager, eventually landing in the Band of Joy and other groups before you know getting real money by being the drummer of Tim Rose's outfit. He's, he's a wild one, John Bonham. Robert Plant, he actually hitchhiked to try and convince John to take the offer to join the band after he said he was going to mull it over. John ultimately agrees, even though he's getting all these sidemen offers. And the reason he joins the New Yardbirds is because in all these sidemen gigs, he's not playing the type of music that he really wants to play, which is driving, fun, hard, danceable rock music. He's, he's kind of backing more of like folkish crooner sorts. Bottom line is he knows what the Yardbirds are, who they are. He's seen Jimmy play guitar. And he knows Jimmy's been to America, and he knows that Jimmy knows that there are those girls there. John Bonham is now the drummer of the New Yardbirds. So the lineup is set for the tour of Scandinavia. Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, John Bonham, and original Yardbirds member Chris Drea on bass. But wait, Chris Drea has decided he wants to become a photographer and quits the band. Good. Grab your bass, grab your camera, and get the fuck out of here so we can get uh, Led Zeppelin up and roaring. Jimmy and Peter do not skip a beat, and they make an offer to a well-respected studio session contemporary of Jimmy's named John Paul Jones to play bass. John Paul Jones, real name John Baldwin, was born 1946 in the London Burbs. He started playing piano at age six. Both of his parents were touring musicians, and John generally attended boarding school growing up. His dad was a, a, a big band leader, and along with his mom, they had a touring vaudevillian comedy act. By the time he's 15, John Paul is the choir master and organist of his community church band and plays bass for a jazz rock group called Jet Black, two T's in Jet. That uh, Jet Black includes John McLaughlin on guitar. John McLaughlin, McLaughlin would go on to be the guitar player on Bitches Brew, On the Corner, all that Miles Davis fusion stuff from you know the early to mid-70s. I think Miles played more organ than horn on In the Corner, on, in On the Corner. That's when, This is like the era when Miles Davis was blasting rails and he had that uh, Lori Lightfoot hair. Wore those big sunglasses. In 1962, John Paul Jones becomes the bass player for The Shadows, who had just had a number one hit called Diamonds. His his future bandmate, Jimmy Page, he played the guitar on Diamonds, on the Diamonds single. 
So John stays with the Shadows for a couple years, and then he starts working as a session musician for Decca Records in 1964. He's only 18 year old, 18 years old at the time. From 1964 to 1968, John Paul Jones he, he changes his name from Baldwin to JPJ during this time. He would be part of hundreds of pop recordings in various roles, including bassist, keyboardist, and arranger. John Paul Jones did the string arrangements for the Stones' She's a Rainbow off the Satanic Majesty's Request album. He also did a lot of stuff for Hurdy Gurdy Man, Sunshine Superman, all the, all the, the Donovan stuff. By 1968, though, he's burnt to a crisp and having been working up to on 50 or 60 different projects a month. He's only 22 years old and looking to rock in a band proper instead of all this like session work. John accepts the offer from Jimmy, and in August 1968, the four members of the New Yardbirds play together for the first time in the basement of a record shop in London. As soon as they started playing, they knew they had something. So the New Yardbirds, they would successfully complete their Scandinavian tour. 14 shows in Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. The set list included the Yardbirds' standard For Your Love, American Jump Blues Jam, Train Kept a Rollin', which the um, Aerosmith would record uh, a couple years later. And also, most of the songs that would end up on Led Zeppelin 1, including an audience mesmerizer called Dazed and Confused. The band wants more. It's working, and anyone that sees and hears them agrees. By the end of September 1968, the new Yardbirds who are only a month old, are in the studio to record an album. Time to get this magic on vinyl, but wait, they can no longer use the name The New Yardbirds. Chris Drea, he obtains a cease and desist letter that Jimmy and his new gang could only use the name Yardbirds for the Scandinavian outings. Good. You fucking baby, take the Yardbirds name and... Fly into Loch Ness for all we care. Just be gone. So Jimmy Page came up, comes up with the name Led Zeppelin from a reply given to him a few years earlier by Who drummer Keith Moon and bassist John Entwistle. So Jimmy had been trying to start a super group with those two guys and Jeff Beck. Entwistle, the bassist, he said it would go over like a lead balloon. Jimmy just changed the word balloon to Zeppelin, and it was Peter Grant's suggestion that they remove the letter A from lead to avoid pronunciation confusion. So the name is set. We got Led Zeppelin. The lineup is set. Led Zeppelin is in flight for the next 12 years. In November 1968, Peter Grant secures a phenomenal record deal for Led Zeppelin from Atlantic Records, who at the time was a label primarily financing soul and jazz artists. He got the band a $143,000 advance, which is close to a million and a half in today's money. This this deal was made without Ahmet Erdogan, Herb Herb Abramson, or anyone else at Atlantic Records ever seeing the band in the flesh. Dusty Springfield, who was in the middle of recording her masterpiece Dusty in Memphis for Atlantic, was a was a friend of John Paul Jones and told the Atlantic folk that her future la- that her future label mates Led Zeppelin would be gigantic. They believed her. 
John Bull Jones would prove to be the steadiest rock in Led Zeppelin for their entire career. He, he always had kept one foot on earth and had a flawless reputation from his, his session days. And look at that. His, uh, it, it helped get them, secure them like the greatest record deal ever with Atlantic Records. So in addition, in addition to the obscene blind advance Grant secured from Atlantic, the contract included complete autonomic control for the band over when they would release albums, what songs would go on said album, when they would tour, and how to promote the albums. This included final say on what singles were released. They also got to start their own publishing company called Super Hype to handle song licensing and all that business. Led Zeppelin now have like the best rock and roll recording contract ever with Atlantic. Ahmed Erdogan, the Atlantic found, founder, by the way, is a super cool legend originally from Turkey. Best coffee ever with a glass of water, Turkish delight. Usually a random old man smoking a cigarette out front. Big fan of Turkish coffee. And Ahmed Erdogan. All of this is accomplished by Led Zeppelin also having the greatest band manager ever in Peter Grant. So before managing Led Zepp, six foot five, 300 pound plus giant, Peter Grant had been a carny wrestler, a bouncer, movie extra, and drove pop stars like Gene Vincent around when they were on tour. He had this like weird van thing and he used to drive, you know, whatever they needed. They need to go to the store, go gig to gig. He would, he would drive them around. He ended up working for producer Don Arden, who I think is, isn't that Sharon Osbourne's dad? And he soaked up the music business like a car wash sponge. You know, how to handle band personalities, finances, shady concert promoters, the whole, the whole thing. He gets his first band manager taste with the Yardbirds. From a band's perspective, Grant is as good as a manager can be, puts artists first, and basically tells Led Zeppelin to solely concentrate on making music, and he will take care of everything else. The days of weasel concert promoters and record distributors are like non-existent for Led Zeppelin with Peter Grant behind the wheel. Peter realized early that American concert promoters were absolutely scared shitless of his dry British accent coupled with his enormous size. I'll tell you, this guy, Peter Grant, he would definitely eat for free at the Heart Attack Grill if he went to Las Vegas. And then he would probably lay waste to the legal prostitution industry on the strip in like one sweaty lumbering swoop. Peter Grant, guy, guy is a total tit ogre, but my God, the band trusted him in full. He, he, he did them right. Led Zeppelin One was recorded at Olympic Studios in London in fall 1968, produced by and paid for by Jimmy Page. The songs on Led Zeppelin One are a collection of new material from their earliest uh, re rehearsal sessions and then also reworks of some old blues songs the, the band collectively loves. Led Zeppelin recorded this first album like two months after forming. Led Zeppelin 1 is my seventh favorite of the eight studio albums proper of Led Zeppelin. Good times, bad times, playlistable anytime, anywhere. Dazed and Confused riff and that Bojam, pretty legendary. But my personal favorite magic found in Led Zeppelin 1 is the opening two-track combo of Side B. Your Time is Going to Come, written by Paige Plant and Jones, and then followed by the two-minute Paige guitar instrumental, Black Mountainside. 
That is Viram Jasani on tabla drum. It's the only non-Zeppelin person to play on the like on most uh, Led Zeppelin albums. I, they've only had a few like interlopers, if you will. Jasani also played something on. He, he played for guitarist John Mayer, and uh, he recorded something with him in two thousand and eight. I have I cannot tell you what it was. I don't know any John Mayer songs except. That run through the hallway song. Led Zeppelin 1 was released in January 1969 while Zepp is on tour in the United States. That tour started right after Christmas 1968 with Led Zeppelin opening the multi-band bills for fellow Atlantic Records artists. Like There was other Atlantic Records bands on there like Vanilla Fudge, Iron Butterfly, and Country Joe and the Fish. By the end of the tour in Baltimore, February 1969, the other bands weren't even showing up. Led Zeppelin was just simply crushing it. Peter Grant said after that first U.S. tour, they all knew the band would be the biggest thing in the world. Jimmy Page wanted no part of releasing singles. He only relented on Communication Breakdown being released as a single in the United States. The famous cover art with the Hindenburg going down, that was arranged by an artist named George Hardy. The photo on the of the of the band on the back was taken by Chris Drea, the wannabe photographer from the from the Yardbirds. It's the worst photogra- photograph of Led Zeppelin in their existence. Congratulations, Drea! Stick your uh, camera up your nipper. Led Zeppelin One was popular, and the band would spend much of 1969 raising hell on the road in England and the United States. The band did four European and three American tours from January to August. They turned down an invitation to play at Woodstock as they didn't want to be a small part of some ramshackle operation. This was uh, heavily emphasized by Peter Grant. Smart move. Woodstock, not that great in a musical sense. Sly and the Family Stones sets pretty good. Woodstock to me is just shirtless men in jeans climbing towers with like cigarettes dangling out of their mouth. Oh, that Santana set's pretty spectacular, actually. If um, if John Bonham took the offer to be in Joe Cocker's to be Joe Cocker's drummer, he would have been on the Wonder Years theme song instead of Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin Two would be recorded during their band's travels at a number of studios in various cities: London, L.A., New York, and even Ardent in Memphis, where Cat Power would lay down a masterpiece. 24 years, was it 24 or 25 years later? Robert Plant openly didn't like the hectic piecemeal way Led Zeppelin II was recorded. It was, uh, it was released October 1969 and was huge. Number one album in the U.S. and England. Led Zeppelin had only been together as a band for a little over a year at this point. Led Zeppelin II is my sixth favorite of the eight Led Zeppelin studio albums. It was a game changer as far as hard rock goes. Whole Lot of Love was played at every Led Zeppelin show from ni- from June 1969 till their end, but to me it's like one step above Smoke on the Water on the Enough meter. But this album is loaded with chestnuts. What is and what should never be was mostly written by the Blouse King. Uh, Robert gets to spread his, Robert Plank gets to finally spread his creative wings on the second album. Ramble On might be the best Zeppelin song off the first of any of the songs on the first three albums. Heartbreaker was basically written as a show-off piece for Jimmy Page with that standalone guitar solo in the middle. The band never played 
Living Loving Made Live, they hated the song and used it specifically as filler. They never, I, I, I don't know. That's the Living Loving Made Living Love. That's that's the one after Heartbreaker. Heartbreaker goes right into Living Loving Made. Moby Dick is John Bonham's drum solo song, but Jimmy's main riff is the highlight of that song to me. And uh, the to me, the home run in the album, Bring It On Home, closes it, closes out. It's the best of the Led Zeppelin blues cover-ish songs in their catalog. It's originally written by, by uh, Willie Dixon. No singles were released off of Led Zeppelin II in England, but a whole lot of love was, in the, was, was released in the U.S., and it was a top fiver. Led Zeppelin and Peter Grant were in agreement that they wanted their albums to be uniformly single listening experiences. Amen to that. They were not into singles. As the 1960s come to a close, it has been an insanely eventful and successful year and a half for Led Zeppelin. The band retreats back to England to appreciate what they have done and contemplate where they are going next. By early 1970, the band has already started recording their third album, but decided that they really needed a break from all the mayhem. At the suggestion of Robert, he and Jimmy retreated to the country and took up refuge in Bron Ayer. That's how it's pronounced. B-R-O-N hyphen Y hyphen A-U-R. Bron Ayer. An 18th century, it was an 18th century remote cottage in Wales that Robert had spent time with as a youth with his family. They would write much of the folkish, folkish material that appears on side B of this album during this downtime. Robert and Jimmy would reconnect with Bonham and Jones at Headley Grange, a rundown three-story workhouse located in Hampshire. They would use the Rolling Stones mobile recording unit, now parked on site, to finish the album. So they went from, Robert and Jimmy went from Bron or Iyer, wrote some stuff, and then they met up at another uh, ramshackle country house called Headley Grange to record the album. The, the RSM, the uh, the Rolling Stones mobile rec- recording unit, it was called the RSM. It was once owned by the Stones and used to record a ton of music by different artists over the years, including the Stones themselves. Dire Straits, The Who, Bob Marley used the RSM for something, Iron Maiden, and then even into the 90s, Wishbone Ash uh, used the mobile recording unit. The RSM now resides at a museum in Calgary, Canada. Material recorded at the Headley Grange sessions would appear not only on Led Zeppelin 3, but three of the albums following it as well. It should also be noted as we approach Led Zeppelin 3 that the band grows beards. All four of them. The Blouse King, he looks the best with a beard, no doubt. Bonham always had the trash stash, so he just kind of filled it filled it in on his chin. I would say that the beard does not work for Jimmy Page. He's better with that Wizard of Waldorf look with the share pants. JPJ also grew a beard. It's it's kind of weird that they all that they coordinated their uh, beard growth. So Led Zeppelin three is my fourth favorite Led Zeppelin LP of the eight. The album contains, at least to me, it's 10 bearded bridge planks connecting the early whole lot of love hype of Led Zeppelin to Stairway Heaven to when they get to Stairway to Heaven and 
achieve music culture immortality. All right, let's get into the songs. The legendary Immigrant Song is the opening track of Led Zeppelin III. Valhalla is a term from Norse Viking mythology that translates to Hall of the Fallen. I, 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 had, no, I, I had no idea what the term Valhalla like, actually meant. But this song is technically not about Vikings. It's autobiographical. Led Zeppelin had been invited to, they got invited to play a concert in Reykjavik, Iceland. And the day before the band arrived, all the civil servants went on strike. And the concert was about to hit the skids. There was nobody to work the show. The nearby university prepared a makeshift stage for the band, and the show happened, and it was phenomenal. The Icelandic audience ate up Led Zeppelin. This song is all about that adventure. Immigrant, immigrant Song was the only single released off of Led Zeppelin 3. The B-side of the single was Hey, Hey, What Can I Do, which was also was probably written at the Bronner Iyer Cottage, and that was left off of Led Zeppelin 3, the full album. If it had been included, it would be one of the best joints on the, on the record. Uh, hey, What Can I Do is in my personal top 20 Led Zeppelin songs. It's like king of the bonus tracks in Led Zeppelin, Lord. H-H-W-C-I-D, it's too long to do by a breathe. It could be found as a bonus track on the remastered Coda. It's on the 10-disc complete studio uh, studio album box set. And also the 12-disc Led Zeppelin definitive collection box set. The song Friends is second. This was written by Page and Plant during the, the Bronner Iyer retreat. But it's John Paul Jones who gives this song its psychedelic character. Led Zeppelin 3 is the album where John Paul Jones would break out as Led Zeppelin's multi-instrumental utility whiz. John used keyboard, mandolin, and even added strings to this uh, particular journey. synthesizer drone probably made Mort Garson hard Friends is one of very few Led Zeppelin songs to actually contain string arrangements so the Moog synthesizer drone seemed that it seamlessly transition transitions into the third song Celebration Day this is one of my absolute favorite Led Zeppelin songs totally unique with that gong ring guitar
Celebration Day was Atlantic Records founder Amit Erdogan's favorite Led Zeppelin song. For Amit, it was Deep Tracks, Deep Tracks only. When Led Zeppelin reunited in 2017, that that performance was was for the uh, Amit Erdogan tribute concert. He passed away the year before. That the 2007 show that was released on DVD in 2012, and the name of the DVD is called Celebration Day. Since I've been loving you is song four. Get the blues out of the way so we can continue with the weirdness. Plant's vocal range is insane on this one. To me, this was always the seven, seven, seven song. That seven, seven, seven song. Let let Robert, let the king of blouse sing it. Jimmy Page's big guitar solo on Since I've Been Loving You was done in only one take. Guy's an animal. The Wizard of Waldorf. Out on the Tiles closes uh, closes outside A of Led Zeppelin 3. It's the last of the hard rockers on the album. John Bonham gets partial songwriting credit on Tiles. They got the, they got the name of the song from him. John used to refer to pub hopping as going out on the Tiles. Out on the Tiles was never a favorite of the tried-and-true majority of Zep fans. The main riff was mostly used in concert as an introduction to Black Dog, like an introduction riff to before they launched into Black Dog. All right, well, it's time to flip the record. You know, um, when John Bonham used to go out on the Tiles and raise hell, he usually did so with Led Zeppelin's tour manager, Richard Cole. Cole was um, just as intimidating to promoters and just as protective of Zeppelin as uh, the real manager as the overall manager, Peter Grant. He was, uh, Richard Cole was considered a cornerstone of Led Zeppelin's operational success on those early U.S. tours. Instead of dealing, he did, instead of dealing with American work crews and equipment, he had all Led Zeppelin stuff shipped overseas and they would use their own guys to set up and break down just to avoid any sort of wishy-washiness. It was also Grant's, uh, Peter Grant's muscle in tracking down and keeping tally of concert gate receipts. Guy, guy was an, uh, Richard Cole was an absolute party animal too. Anything to do with the drink, drugs, and bush fell under Richard Cole's umbrella of duties. Gallows Pole kicks off the second side. Led Zeppelin three takes an acoustic turn from here on out. I, Gals will easily one of the best songs on Led Zeppelin 3. This is how they take a gentle timeout. 
gallows pole originated from an old English poem called The Maid Freed from the Gallows. But Led Zeppelin probably got the idea for the song from old bluesman Led Belly, who performed a musical version of the poem called The Gallus Pole. Tangerine is up next. Everyone loves Tangerine. Jimmy Page wrote this song years earlier, and the, the Yardbirds attempted and failed to record it sufficiently. Love the steel guitar and the country tinge of this one. minor suspended fourth a minor gd guitar run the melodic uh like the verse guitar run that's like textbook week one uh of learning to play the guitar tangerine is the is like the first led zeppelin song a lot of guitar players learn to play like out of the gate that's the way is track number eight and my favorite song that jimmy and the blouse king wrote at braun or Iyer. It, it's beautiful Page plays his acoustic guitar in an open G-flat tuning and adds pedal steel and dulcimer, which is like a, I think that's like a medieval type of instrument. That's uh, John Paul Jones on mandolin. It's tough uh, cutting that one off early. It's a beautiful song. You would never know by the sound of that acoustic guitar that the guy playing it used to travel with a suitcase filled with leather whips on tour. Jimmy Page, he was super into Aleister Crowley and like all kinds of occult rituals. He even bought Aleister uh, Crowley's home at one point. It was like, it's like I think it's like a, it was like a castle. It had like a name, a formal name. I hope Bron or I are wasn't the safe word for those whips. Can I have somebody? I, I can't say it. Stop whipping me, you prick. The deep tracks continue as we near the end of Led Zeppelin 3. Bronner Iyer stomp. That shithole cottage gets its name formally into the Led Zeppelin canon. the joys of a hoedown led zeppelin 3's album cover art was done by an artist who went by the name zachron his real name was richard drew jimmy page called the cover art a disappointment said it made no sense and was teeny bopperish 
They were on a deadline, though, and Jimmy said, fine, just give me the fucking thing. The final art looks like a tattooed arm with little sketches and doodles across, and then the band, names appe- the band name appears in bubble writing on a cream background. Not as good as the World War I-inspired cover art from the second album, but uh, I don't know. I like it. Led Zeppelin Three closes with hats off to Harper. Hats off to Roy in brackets, Harper. It's based off a Buka White song. Robert Plant, complete psychopath singing on this one. One of the recording sessions for Led Zeppelin 3, the band recorded a whole set of country and traditional blues songs. Hats Off was the only one to make uh, the final cut. Travel- Traveling Riverside Blues was part of that set and is a is a banger. I know Led Zeppelin fans know that song. Um, that could, that's found on the Led Zeppelin BBC sessions uh, compilation. It's like a two. It was a two disc thing from the early. I think it was released in the early two thousands. I forget. The name of the song, Hats Off to Roy Harper, it's a tribute to British singer-songwriter Roy, who still makes music to this day. If you've ever heard the Pink Floyd song, Have a Cigar, and I, I know you probably have, that's Roy Harper singing the lead vocals. They call it Ride in the Gravy Train. So Led Zeppelin Three was easily one of the most anticipated albums released in 1970. Came out October 1970. It immediately went to number one in England and hit number one in the U.S. three weeks after its release. Reviews were mixed, mostly negative, with some calling the heavier songs on side A mindless noise and the acoustic stuff on side B Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young ripoff music. Jimmy Page always said he didn't give a shit about like music like music journalist opinions. But after the critical reaction of uh, Led Zeppelin three, he didn't give another press interview for a year and a half. Robert Kruskow of the Village Voice loved it, though. Here's a quote from his review. Quote, I have always approved theoretically of Led Zepp's concept, and now the group has finally whipped it into shape. It's amazing to realize that Robert Plant's vocals can convey the same overbearing power when Page plays acoustic, as he does to great effect on several cuts here. No drum solos either. Heavy. Awesome. Following the release, the band decided to take a break from touring to concentrate as a collective on writing and then recording their next album. Remember, uh, Led Zeppelin 2 was recorded on the road and 3 was written in several locations in various configurations. Led Zeppelin, th- Led Zeppelin was given up a lot of money by coming off the road, including an invitation to perform a New Year's Eve show that would be broadcast throughout England. Pennies, though, compared with what was to come, Led Zeppelin being becoming the biggest rock and roll band in the world. It's time to shave the beards and climb the stairs, boys. Thanks for listening, everyone. New album, new episode next Tuesday. Take care. Mm-hmm.